0: Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. For a portion of her life, my mother was a secretary. Every once in a while, I would see her fingers fly over a typewriter keyboard, nary making a mistake. I labored on the typewriter and was quite dependent on correcting fluid to cover mistakes and type over them. My mom used her secretarial skills to take jobs in various parts of the world exposing her to many different cultures, peoples, and languages. I think she would have very much valued meeting the subject of our episode today, Mrs. Betty Nesmith Graham, inventor of liquid paper, the product that helped me get papers in on time and legible in my undergraduate days. In the case of Graham, here was a brilliant and inventive mind seemingly trapped in a limited office role. But she was literally and metaphorically solution-oriented, creating an office product, liquid paper, that transformed an industry and people's work and student lives. So, today, I'm so pleased to have two guests to help us get a deeper insight into Betty Graham's extraordinary life and the spiritual inspiration that fueled it. With me are Rivi Feinsilber and Madeline Maupin. Rivy works here at the Mary Baker Library as its assistant archivist. Rivy recently published an article on Betty Graham for the Library's Women of History web series that focuses on untold stories of women with many different connections to Christian science. In some cases, the women are less well-known, and in others, the articles bring out an important but untold dimension of a well-known woman's story. So welcome, Rivi.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: We're also so glad to have with us Madeline Maupin for this conversation. Madeline has a strong background in biblical studies and in business. With a master's degree in theological studies from San Francisco Seminary, she is founder of Bible Roads, a biblical education company. Prior to starting Bible Roads, Madeline co-owned and ran a leadership consulting firm in Los Angeles, working with major entertainment and high-tech companies. Along the way, she had the opportunity to work with Betty Graham at Liquid Paper, and in setting up Graham's philanthropic organization, the Gihon Foundation. So great to have you, Madeline, not only because you worked with Betty Graham, but also because of the connection you have with Mrs. Graham's deep spiritual commitments and as women trailblazing in the business world. So great to have you, Madeline.
2: Thank you. Lovely to be here.
0: Rivi, what was it that made you want to spend time looking into the life and career of Betty Graham?
1: She was an amazing entrepreneur mm. and very much self-starter. The reason I decided to write a woman of history on Mrs. Graham mm. is not just because of her amazing innovative thinking and in entrepreneurship, but I found that a lot of articles in the larger media did not touch on her core which is Christian science. Mm-hmm. And since Christian science was the foundation for everything that she did, I thought it was very important to highlight that and show what was her driving force. An important resource for my article was actually the interview that Madeline did
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: um, with Mrs. Graham right? that was published in the Christian Science magazine, the Christian Science Journal it goes to what the center of my article was. It was really her being not just, if you will, rags-to-riches story, but also how generous she was.
0: But Madeline, you you really got to know the woman in your experience.
2: First of all, it's a great privilege to talk about her because she was a huge influence on my life. And Rivie is so accurate that Christian science was at the heart of everything she did. Mm. She was certainly known in an industry that didn't have women. For the most part, in the middle of the 20th century, the office supply industry was kind of dirty, old-fashioned, a guy's guy, a lot of salesmen that had been in it, not particularly educated Mm -hmm. people. She changed all that. She not only entered in with a product that was completely original, but she elevated her products because her customer was the woman secretary. And because she had been that, she knew how hard those jobs were and frankly, how thankless they often were. And she wanted to make lovely products for them that were incredibly practical. So the idea of a liquid correction fluid instead of an eraser came right out of her own experience her life was not an easy one. Mm -hmm. She dropped out of high school, was married. Mrs. Graham's first husband was named Nesmith, who was the high school sweetheart. He went off to World War II, and when he came back, she said, like many men, he was completely changed. She hadn't seen him in four years, and there ended up being some physical abuse there so that she now had a baby. She left in the middle of the night on a bus with very little money and came to Dallas from South Texas. And she immediately got a job as a secretary, but she would be the first to say she was terrible at making typing corrections. (laughs) And whenever she used an eraser, she'd make a hole in the paper and you'd have to start again. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, she was really struggling to feed this little boy and herself. And she said on Sunday, she'd plan the meals and they would have dinner five nights a week, not seven, because she couldn't afford the food. And she was praying about supply. And this idea came to her one day that when an artist made a mistake. They didn't rip the paint off the canvas, they painted over it. Mm -hmm. And she wondered why couldn't people do that as well, especially secretaries, most of which were women. So she began to take the bus, they couldn't afford a car. She took the bus down to the public library and would stay until the library closed at night reading everything she could about paint. And eventually, she started experimenting on her kitchen stove with a big spaghetti pot. And she had a Sunday school class of seventh graders. And she asked them all to come over with their mother's old fingernail polish bottles. And she boiled them in the spaghetti pot to clean out the bottles. Then she'd cut the brush of the nail polish bottle on an angle so that you could point with the brush and it would be more exact. Mm. And then with this experiment of paints, she would make a batch of paint. The kids would be her first assembly line and they'd fill up with these Subi Honey plastic bottles, if you remember those, that were about six inches tall with a spout and she'd fill them up for the kids and they'd make an assembly line and fill up these clean Boiled nail polish bottles, and she'd then take them to work. And she was in a steno pool with forty other women, and she'd hide a bottle in her purse until the supervisor left, and then she'd whip the bottle out and test it on paper. And one day, a woman next to her said, "Betty, what on earth are you doing?" And she (laughs) said, "Well, I'm, I'm testing something." And she said, "Does it work?" And she said, "It does." And she said, give me a bottle. Well, pretty soon the entire steno pool was using these bottles that her seventh grade Sunday school class had made on their kitchen floor. And then she put a one inch ad in an office supply magazine and Polaroid answered the ad and ordered a gross. And she said to me, I didn't even know what a gross was. (laughs) That's 144 bottles. And she immediately got the same Sunday school kids to be her assembly line, and they packed them up and shipped them off, and that was the very first order for liquid paper. And eventually, she left the steno pool, and as she continued to develop products, she would take common ideas like a hand towelette, In those days, the whole thing was women couldn't get up whenever they wanted and go to the water cooler. You know, they really needed to stay at their desk. And the job was pretty filthy, changing typewriter ribbons, Mm -hmm. ink pens that would get on you. She bought the perfume from Estee Lauder and fragranced these towelettes and made them pink. And they were called finger pinkies. And those things worked so well She sold thousands and thousands of boxes, and women loved having finger pinkies in their desk drawer so they could stay there. Even their office supervisors liked it because they wouldn't leave their desk to go to the washroom. So anyway, that was the beginning of many, many products, and liquid paper for her, she felt very clear from the beginning, was a spiritual idea that had come to her, this completely original idea of how to make corrections. And then the company just kept building. And by the time I joined them in 73 or 74, she had 300 employees and she was very, very generous to those employees. She got her legal team to find out the tax laws in such a way that she wanted to maximize what she could give employees. So she had a 13 month payroll policy. And at the end of December, she gave everybody another monthly check as a Christmas bonus. And when I first went to Liquid Paper, everybody was talking about, well, three years ago, the bonus paid for my child's wedding or it paid for the carpet in our home. She was so generous with employees and they loved her. And you never saw people leaving liquid paper, but Mm -hmm. there was a line of people to work there.
0: Wow. That's wonderful to get this insight into her character and her um, concern and consideration for people that were having the same experience she had had.
2: You know, I was a consumer rep for the East Coast for liquid paper.
0: Mm. They
2: would literally drop me like at Hartford Insurance Building that had 100 stories, at 8 a.m., I had a bag full of liquid paper bottles, and I'd go sample all the way, every floor, every place I went, whether it was in an office or in an office supply store, the liquid paper lady is here. (laughs) If there was a way that you could have captured goodwill because Mm. Everybody knew her story. Wow. She was one of them and she became a champion of women long before that Dolly Parton 9 to 5 movie came out. Mm. Betty Graham was like their person.
1: Mrs. Graham recognized that every person has value beyond what they can do to make a profit or what their status is, she made all this money. But really, I think the bigger success was how
2: she permeated everything she did with her values. Mm -hmm. Very much. One thing I, I think might be of interest is she ran into a very tough situation where some executives were trying to change the formula of liquid paper, which would keep her from getting the royalties which was the source of her uh, wealth, and she had to take them to a court of law. We would talk quite a bit by telephone, and I asked her how she was praying about this lawsuit, and she quoted the statement from Mary Baker Eddy's small book, No and Yes. There's a paragraph there that says, Jesus' true and conscious being never left heaven for earth. Hmm. And I said, what does that mean to you? And she said, liquid paper was a spiritual idea from its start. It has never left heaven for earth. And she went on to say that meant it wasn't vulnerable. It couldn't be ripped apart from her. When she first made this uh, lawsuit, her attorney advised her not to do it because it was a win-all or lose-all. And at the time, it was about a $22 million suit, which in the mid-70s is a lot more money than it is today. The point is, she never looked at the money. Mm -hmm. Her clarity about substance and its source in spirit was always her standpoint. And she won that lawsuit rather handily. And she took the step then to sell liquid paper because she didn't want anything like that to happen again after her passing. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: that's when she found the buyer in Boston of Gillette and uh, sold it and took the proceeds and started a foundation which she used her maiden name, Betty Claire McMurray, not Graham. And that foundation was the second example of some of the most original thinking I've ever seen. The first original was the invention of liquid paper itself. The second was her approach to philanthropy, which was not just to give of your largest. It was to do the kind of giving where you incented the grantee to pay you back out of what they would make. She really felt so strongly that nobody should get a free handout that everybody should be able to live up to their God-given intelligence and entrepreneurial spirit. And this was a foundation for women. And I remember going with her to a philanthropic conference, a big national conference on philanthropy, and the Ms. Foundation and Mrs. Graham's were the only two in the world at that time. And this is back in about 78 that were focused on women, and that was very unusual, and Mrs. Graham wanted to focus on women that really had very little, and we were looking at women in Central America where $100 would make the difference between a village surviving, not just a family, because Mm -hmm. so many of the men were at war, and many years later, I started a newspaper in Silicon Valley and got involved in something called Women in Business for Women Overseas or something like that. And they were using the exact model Mrs. Graham had started, which was giving funds but expecting a payback. That was very unusual philanthropy at that time.
0: Yeah, it sounds to me like um, what we might call today social entrepreneurship. Or, yes, or, exactly. Or micro-lending. Um,
2: exactly, but nobody was doing that right. in the mid-'70s. Yeah. She was completely original that way. That's and fantastic. everything she did, including the philanthropy, was for her grounded in spiritual ideas that were wholly original. If mm-hmm. there was one quality I could align her with over years of knowing her, it was this original thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating the name of the foundation that she started that was so in advance, the Gihon Foundation. What is the source of that name?
2: It's from the definition Mary Baker Eddy gives of one of the rivers that flows from the Tigris and Euphrates. And from a biblical standpoint, it's a very hard thing to pin down. I've got a copy of Science and Health in front of me, and I'm just going to turn to this definition and read it for you. It's on page 587 of Science and Health, and it's Gihon, in parentheses, River, the rights of woman acknowledged morally, civilly, and socially. Now, I will tell you, as somebody who's studied the Bible a long time, it's hard to find a root of that definition in biblical scholarship. Like, where does the whole concept of woman come from? But one of the only threads I've ever found is that the Gihon flowed south from the Tigris and Euphrates, which is to Daisy Rock, the great river valley where civilization began. And it flows down to Ethiopia, which was famous for women rulers.
0: You know, it's so interesting, Madeline, that you bring that out about the women leaders in Ethiopia, because in the year 2000, the Christian Science Sentinel hosted this essay contest about the new millennium. And first prize uh, was awarded to James Albans. And actually, he was involved with programs at the Mary Bakerty Library before my time. And his essay that, that won the contest was titled The Millennial River. And in it, he discusses the Gihon River. And he brings out this, this fact about the Candices. He writes, the river Gihon compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia, where in ancient times a line of enlightened female sovereigns, the Candices reigned. So he's making that same connection as, as you did.
2: Oh, Jonathan, you've just given me a huge gift. I have never found anyone who could endorse that. Everybody just thought that was interesting. But I'm so glad to know somebody else figured that out.
0: So all of this is sort of stimulated from Mary Baker Eddy's definitions of these four rivers that flow out of the Garden of Eden. She has uh, what she calls the glossary in Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, her, her main work, where she identifies the spiritual meaning of different biblical terms, and the Gihon River is one of those four rivers. But then Jim Albums goes on to discuss what he sees as the Gihon effect, and it's it's hard for me not to see the Gihon effect in the way he's writing about it as very much a part of Betty Nesmith grahams effect. Um, He writes, quote, In the acknowledgement morally, civilly, socially of the rights of women— Mankind will delight in finding its own true nature and will find balance in life. And he concludes, quote, Finally, if the entire world is to achieve an acceptable standard of living, true wealth creation, balanced wealth creation, will require equal partners in life. I can see why Betty Graham would have seen a connection between her life and values and what Mary Baker Eddy identifies as Gihon as a definition in her glossary and would want that to be the name of her foundation. Just also thinking about how she applied those Gihon-like values in the workplace.
2: There was a child care center that, to my knowledge, was the first in Dallas that she started at Liquid Paper, and women just couldn't believe they didn't have to drive children all over creation and could go to the workplace and check on their children. That was a very new idea. And while I was in Dallas in 77, three women were acknowledged as these extraordinary entrepreneurs. Uh, One of them was Mrs. Graham, another Mary Kay Cosmetics, and a third woman. And there was a big center built downtown in Dallas called Thanksgiving Square. And I remember Mrs. Graham gave a great deal to that. And a huge deal was made of that in the national press because no community had ever acknowledged the role of gratitude Mm. in a business way. And yet these women so influenced the business community of Dallas and gratitude became a huge part of that entire business community.
0: That's wonderful. There's one other thing that often comes out if you Google <laughs> Betty Graham, and that has to do with her son.
1: So Michael Nesmith mm-hmm. was a member of the '60s band, The Monkees. <laughs> right. Or he was also creator, as well. I should say, of the band and his memoir, autobiography, Infinite Tuesday, was actually also instrumental for my article along with with Madeline's interview, and it gave a more in-depth look into his
2: mother.
0: Madeline, did you ever have the opportunity to um, meet the family, mom and son?
2: Sure. I, I knew Michael, yes, and he loved Christian science. She had really raised him with that as the core of their Lives and uh, he eventually went on after the monkey's fame to have class instruction with a Christian science authorized teacher and introduced his wife to Christian science. And she also became a class taught Christian scientist. And he loved his mother. He loved her memory. She passed in 1980. And so Michael lived almost another 40 years to try to make sure people really understood the fuller dimension of Mrs. Graham.
0: Madeline, it's so interesting that you mentioned that Michael Nesmith and his wife took what is called Christian Science Class Instruction, which is about a two-week course where one can delve deeply into the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy, often with the aspiration of becoming a Christian Science Healer, a Christian Science Practitioner. That was something that Mrs. Graham took advantage of. Rivi... What do we know of her career as a Christian science practitioner?
1: She was a practitioner from 1968 through about 1980, before her passing. And we have this information because the Christian Science Journal lists Christian science practitioners every year.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And those were the years that she was in the
0: journal. You know, we've been talking in this episode about the deep significance of Christian science for Betty Graham and ultimately how she wanted to dedicate some of her life to the practice of Christian science as a Christian science healer, a Christian science practitioner. But how did this all start for her? What was the origin of this deep valuing of Christian science for for Graham?
1: Mrs. Graham's introduction to christian science was in all the way back to her first marriage mm-hmm. her husband's aunt was also a christian science practitioner and the aunt was called upon when mrs graham fell gravely ill and fell into a coma wow. so her first husband called upon his aunt and through prayer she was healed Ever since then, she devoted her life to Christian science.
0: Wow. That that is a profound story.
1: Yes. When Mrs. Graham was healed from her illness and came out of the coma, it was a defining moment for her. It helped set her on her path, not just as a very successful businesswoman, but a pioneer in The social reform of business.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Madeline, it was fascinating the Sunday school story that you told at the beginning about Betty Graham in those early days in Dallas. She had her personal belief and her Christian science practice as a healer, um, bringing healing to others. Was there a special significance of being a Sunday school teacher for her? Obviously, The students helped her launch liquid paper, so that was good. But was that an important part of her life, being a Sunday school teacher, a Christian science Sunday school teacher?
2: She loved that role, and Mm -hmm. she did it for many years. And I think, you know, you look at someone's life, and as that that old expression, I can't hear your words because your life speaks too loudly. Right. Mrs. Graham herself was rather soft-spoken. And she was actually quite shy from a personality standpoint and was not at all wild about being the center of attention for media interviews or otherwise. But she did it because she so wanted the world to see how employees could be treated, how a new idea could break through, could be practical, could earn money, could bless an entire community.
0: Well, it's been. Wonderful to spend this time with, with both of you. It's been inspiring. I've certainly had a taste of heaven <laughs> in the <laughs> studio here. So um, thank you so much, Rivie. Rivie Silver.
1: Thank you for having me. And again, Madeline, thank you so much for your personal insight to not just Mrs. Graham's, you know, day-to-day or, or personal life, but just also her thoughts, her being. Um, it's been very eye-opening, and she is definitely
2: a woman of history. The very last time we were together was in Boston, right down the street from the Mary Baker Eddy Library at the Ritz Hotel dining room where we had breakfast, and she was going over later to Harvard Business School to receive an award for Entrepreneurial Woman of the Year. Wow. And she was very proud of that because she hadn't finished high school. hmm And I think it's hard for us to appreciate what somebody who is such a pioneer goes through, but in the end, the joy of what she learned spiritually that blessed so many families, hundreds and hundreds of families.
0: Thank you so much, Madeline. You've brought just a, a wonderful insight and a wonderful perspective and a wonderful personal story of your connection with with Mrs. Graham to Seekers and Scholars. Thank you.
2: You are so welcome. It was my joy. Brought back lots of very special memories.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Betty Graham Liquid Paper and the Spiritual Force of an Original Idea. It was a privilege for us at Seekers and Scholars to delve into her profound and trailblazing story with Rivi Feinzebler, who researched on Graham for an article for the Mary Bacardi Library's Woman of History series, and with Madeline Maupin, who worked with and had a close personal relationship with Graham. Please join us for upcoming episodes as we look at the history of spiritual healing in 20th century Great Britain, particularly as it influenced the Church of England and the Archbishop's Commission on Divine Healing. 1953 to 1958. And we'll also be dedicating an episode to the life and work of Robert Peel, focusing on the new edition of his magisterial three-volume biography of Mary Baker Eddy. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2023.